And how about sleeping? I tell people that if you can sleep on Earth, then you can sleep in space. I mean, it's really just like delicious. I wanted every picture, whether it was posed or casual or working or whatever, I wanted girls to have a chance to see that they belong up there.、Mm-hmm. And I think that that simple gesture of just making sure people know that people like them can be in these kind of pictures、um, can be really important. I worry about、um, the generation coming up that thinks that all the doors. Are automatically open. When I would say, if you if you're going to make a bet about whether you are seen, so to speak, for your capabilities or not,、um, I would I would bet for women and minorities that you are not seen for those. Still,、um, still. and it's still. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Powering Up. Our cross-generational podcast about leadership, power, and gender. I'm Ann Doyle, author of Powering Up: How America's Women Achievers Become Leaders. And I'm Monica Doyle,、uh, who everybody else knows as Ann. I know as my aunt AJ. <laughs> That's right. And、uh, Monica, our guest today is someone I'm lucky enough to call a personal friend. Katie Coleman is a scientist, a pilot, a musician, a mother, and a retired NASA astronaut. And she's a veteran of not just one Monica, but two space shuttle missions, including living for six months on the International Space Station, which is crazy awesome.、Um, 159 days for a total total of. Four thousand three hundred and thirty hours in space. I'm sure she was very busy up there doing scientific experiments. <laughs> but I understand that during her space time or her time on the space station, she also played、um, an Earth to space duet with、uh, the Jethro Tull flautist Ian Anderson. Yep. According to th-、uh, recorded three songs for the Chieftains. I was actually listening to the Chieftains on my way here. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So I love the Chieftains, and coached actress Sandra Bullock for her role as a stranded astronaut in the movie Gravity. Yeah.、Uh, and after her NASA career and 26 years in the U.S. Air Force, Dr. Katie Coleman is now a keynote speaker. She's a consultant on space-related projects. And she's an inspiring advocate for STEM careers. Plus, this year, the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, Katie was one of four astronauts featured on U.S. postage stamps. Katie, you are a perfect example of a girl who grew up dreaming very, very big. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, I actually have to throw one correction in there. Even though I like put these stamps on all of my letters,、um, I have to put a U.S. postage on there too because they're Irish stamps. <laughs> oh, they're Irish stamps. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Can we, we get to them? We want to honor、um, Irish Americans uh, that were um, uh, that were there.、Uh, they wanted to、um, honor astronauts who were of Irish American. Descent, and not because I love seeing my face on a stamp. I was actually quite apprehensive, but then it's—I think it's actually pretty wonderful.、Um, I, I actually use this as an example all the time of how one person can make a difference. I mean, one person was charged with making the 50th anniversary commemorative series for Ireland, 
And that person said, what if we put people on stamps that were still alive? And, oh. and, and the reason was he really wanted to have women on there. Mm. Yeah. And, and being Doyles, Monica <laughs> and I, we love the whole Irish connection we there. We certainly do. <laughs> Well, and you did a fascinating TED Talk from the space station. Uh, you were even floating upside down at times during your talk. Can you give us a little sense of what it's like to live on the International Space Station, maybe even some of your weirdest experiences? You know, I really loved living up there. And, you know, just it, it, life is so different without gravity. I always tell people gravity sucks. <laughs> you know, it's, it's actually just such a dominant force in our whole existence. I mean, if you pass the salt and you drop the salt shaker, it's going to land on the on the floor. Anything you drop, I mean, we're just so used to living with gravity, and especially, um, I know that Anne is a big athlete, and you know, it, gravity rules all of these games, and it's actually learning how to control gravity, you know, within that sport where suddenly we're in a whole new world where there there is actually a tiny 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 amount of gravity like 10 to the minus six um but it's not something that you'd really notice and and so you we actually really have to learn how to throw differently i i would have to like look directly at someone's like middle like right at their chest i mean if you look at their face you're going to aim high and expect whatever you throw to you know come down again and up in space it's just not going to it's going to shoot right over their head run into oh. something bounce off the walls and, and so I use that as an example of just how different and fascinating and fun and, and also just what a great Petri dish it is to do experiments that we get to understand what things want to do without gravity. So I really loved living up there and would have stayed another six months in the mint. When I think about the space station, I mean, it's, it's basically one big long train of like uh, train cars. Uh, without the seats in it, right? So it's a big, long volume, but then some of the train cars are sticking up and some are sticking down, some are sticking sideways. And the times you get really confused when you come out is when you go into one of those ones, it's off on the side or the bottom and you're doing something and maybe you turn to the side and you do something else. And in other words, you've turned yourself around while you've been out of the main train. And when you poke yourself back up, then you kind of expect to be in the same place you were when you left. And you can be completely turned around, like now facing backwards, or and you can just go, wait a minute, where where am I? That none of this looks right. You mean you can get lost up there? Yeah, it's like a different dimension. Um, we actually spent a lot of time thinking about how do we label things so that everybody can find the emergency exit, so to speak. Whoa! And and those are some <laughs> the arrows are there. <laughs> Yeah. And some of the things, just a really fundamental things about like, how do you sleep? And I don't know if we really want to know about how you go to the bathroom, but sort of like normal bodily things we take for granted. How do you do that up there? Um, I would say as someone who has been on multiple camping trips, I will tell you that it's easier in space than it is anywhere that I have ever had to do that here on earth. Okay. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Explain. Really? Um, you know, so, I mean, basically, um, and I think people do like to understand about the, the bathroom. Um, I mean, just because actually everybody, you know, everybody cares about whether they're going to be comfortable up there mm -hmm. and, and whether that's going to be weird. And, and the first thing I tell people is that, first of all, you have plenty of privacy. And for those of your listeners that are old enough to remember what a phone booth is like, <laughs> we have like a large phone booth that is the bathroom. It's about that. It's, I mean, it's really almost the size of two phone booths. And, um, and basically our bathroom, you know, we take advantage of the sort of no 
gravity to figure out, well, how do we make things go to the right place? They're not like all over and do not try this at home, but it is, um, it's about a vacuum, like a vacuum cleaner. But I mean, really, it's not like that. It's not like, it's not this big, fast, you know, thing. It's really, all it takes is a gentle breeze to make everything go in the right place. And so when you turn on the bathroom, there's a funnel attached to a hose that's for peeing. (laughs) <laughs> and you can do that right side up, upside down, anything. And oh for everything gosh. else, basically all the yucky stuff goes into what looks like a toilet, but there's sort of a, like, there's sort of like a plastic bag sort of stretched over the top with like a rubber band. And there's holes in that bag, which sounds not like the right idea. But it turns out we need those holes so we can have airflow going through. And then all the yucky stuff just goes in there, paper, everything. And when you're done, then you just pull up on that rubber band thing and it goes shoomp, and it makes a really tight top. And we poke that whole bag of yucky stuff down through a couple levers. We never see it again until it's time to change that can. And then we put a lid on it. It only happens when like you wake up in the middle of the night and suddenly you realize it is your turn. Oh, no. It's not messy. I mean, it's more just a pain. And we, and we as space station astronauts, you know, we're, we don't really need that stuff on board, but if you were on your way to Mars, which I hope some of your listeners will be, then you would probably be storing that in a storage ship so that you could grow your food in it when yeah, you got to Mars. Fertilizer. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. And how about sleeping? I tell people that if you can sleep on earth, then you can sleep in space. I mean, it's really just like delicious. Um, but it's a little like, I like to sleep kind of curled up. And the only way I could figure out how to do that, we have sleeping bags that are kind of like cloth bags, but they have holes for your arms to poke out. And so you look a little bit like a zombie. Um, and and you can attach it to the wall so you don't go anywhere. We each have our own little cabin, so you're not going to go very far anyway. Cabin, again, think phone booth. Okay. But, um, but then uh, I would like to sleep kind of curled up. So what I would do is tuck my knees up with one hand, zip this thing up with the other. So now my knees are kind of caught and I'm actually like in a little ball. And, and I didn't really like to sleep like tethered to the wall. And so I would wake up in the morning, I would have no idea whether I'd be just kind of like looking at my computer, maybe at the bottom of the computer desk. Like maybe floating around? Yep, it was wow. very fun. Some people miss having a pillow and they actually strap a pillow to their head. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, and I have one more sort of funny question before we get to like the cool professional stuff, which is every time I've seen uh, women astronauts in space, their hair, like their hair is just flying up. So I have had various hairstyles in my life, you know, short, long, medium. So what, what was it like, you know, dealing with your hair in space? Because I've seen lots. I saw the video of you with your hair flying around and also in a ponytail. What's like the best way? What's the worst way? How do you deal with your hair? <laughs> well, most importantly, there is just not any like big dealing. There is just not any big deal. Um, it so it's is similar so to much hair on here, like here. <laughs> you don't see me, but I, you know, I'm always having to tuck my long hair back behind my ears out of my face. And up there, it just has this little life of its own, depending on kind of how it grows. And and so it it just every when I turn my head, my hair goes too. <laughs> and so it's really never in my way, which is the one I care most about, right? Uh-huh. Um, but then I would actually always tie it up like in a ponytail or braid it when we were going to do operations together, like several of us in the same space, because then my hair will be in other people's way up in space. 
some I think hair is a really interesting subject that's actually worth you know a few minutes on the podcast because back in the days of the space shuttle, so I flew twice on the space shuttle, and there was an unwritten but very very clear rule, which was that thou shalt not have thou your hair out wild in the cabin, or and you can have like one photograph of it looking so cool. But that will be your personal photograph, might be used maybe by NASA just a tiny bit, right? But in general, you will have your hair tied back. And, and that makes some physical sense in the shuttle because of it's a small space. It's more like in an airline cockpit. I mean, it's not a very big space there. Mm -hmm. um, but the space station is much bigger. And um, I flew on the, a shuttle mission with Eileen Collins, who was the first woman commander. And we were about to do some you know, TV interview together. And I went to go tie my hair up in a knot on the top of my head. And, and she goes, oh, Katie, leave it out. Because then people know there's like women up here. My hair's too short to really make a difference like that. Huh. And I said, Eileen, you know, we're not supposed to do that. And she <laughs> said, and the commander of this space shuttle would be. <laughs> Love it. Love yeah. it. You know, and I, um, on purpose, um, you know, actually I did, I did a couple things on purpose. Um, one was when I was qualified in the big white space suit that we do spacewalks in, I wanted my picture taken in that suit because you don't get to have your picture taken in it unless you have been selected to be able to do spacewalks up on the space station or on the shuttle. Mm. And so I was really proud of that. Um, and I also wanted that picture to last a gazillion years. And I thought, well, when I'm a grown up, I should probably have short hair. So I have short hair in that picture. But then the day that picture was taken, I started to grow it long because I wanted to make sure when I was up on that space station that I had hair that was long. And I mean, this is, you know, everybody's choice. Not everybody wants to do that, but I did. And I, I just wanted, I wanted every picture, whether it was posed or casual or working or whatever, I wanted girls to have a chance to see that they belong up there. Mm -hmm. And I think that that simple gesture of just making sure people know that people like them can be in these kind of pictures um, can be really important. Well, and speaking of that, um, recently there was the first all-female spacewalk, which, of course, had its own little controversy to kick it off. Um, I was wondering uh, how important was this first step and and how did you feel with, with that first issue of, of women not being able to go on the first walk as scheduled? That is a hard question. And the reason is it reminds me of you have to be careful every time you're reading things, you know, in the paper, in the social media, that really there's always a, there's always a longer story that is more interesting than what you already think is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. And in that case, when there were two women up there and they were both supposed to go out and do a spacewalk and then they didn't have a suit ready for the second woman because the first one had decided had said you know listen for me to be effective i need to be in a in a medium suit not a large and first of all um i mean there just was no way at that point in time to suddenly fix that no matter who wanted to no matter how much they thought of the women which they certainly do think a lot of those women that are up there um, nothing could have changed that because in order to get a new, another spacesuit ready would have been about two weeks of time. And they didn't have that kind of time to go out and do their repair. But having said that, I mean, that situation started back in the mid nineties hmm. when they decided they, meaning NASA, um, decided that they couldn't afford to support all of the sizes of spacesuits. And they stopped supporting or, or maintaining or testing every year the small spacesuits. 
and the extra large spacesuits. They said, you know, we have enough people that fit into mediums and larges, so we're we just can't afford to do everything. And that and that seemed like an, an you know a reasonable decision. And at the same time, by making that decision, you were cutting out basically most of the women mm-hmm. and certainly the smaller guys and um, and the really big guys. And it, after about a couple months, the the extra large spacesuits were reinstated. But the smallest never were. And that meant for people like me, where I am the smallest person to have a spacesuit up on that space station, ready to go out. Um, You know, for people like me, that meant when they said, oh, you probably can't do this because we discontinued those smalls and mediums are going to be so big for you. And I would kind of make jokes. I would go, have you looked at this chest? I mean, do you think that this chest fits in a small (laughs) space? Yeah, but it's really one of those mechanisms that I in um and I think that you can really relate to this. I mean, there's there's also there's there's all sorts of mechanisms to figure out how to be on the team. And you know, you can and, and there's some line I think of the sort of the ends of the spectrum where on one end of the spectrum you say, listen, you know, you're leaving out people, important members of the team, and this is wrong and you and you sh- you should change it now. Mm-hmm. But changing it now wasn't really an option back then. And on the other end of the, the spectrum is going, oh, well, I guess that's too bad. But somewhere in the middle is this is this time of cheerfully showing up, of basically inviting yourself to meetings that you weren't invited to, pretending that you don't mind. And and just because you're there and you do the work and you are seen as a team member that should be there, you change enough people's minds that when they're picking in the future, the women and the small people that come after you have a better chance. And, and I'm proud to say that I was one of those people, and there are certainly more. So it's it, it was a really proud day for those of us that um, have always believed that everyone brings something different to the team, including spacewalks, where it, it is actually a physical advantage to be a larger person. And at the same time, um, I think that women with their, a lot of different things about, you know, sort of stereotypical women, you know, we certainly do a great job out there as well. You know, but I actually hear you saying, because you were, um, you have retired from NASA now, and you had a 26-year career in the Air Force, and um, during your years as an astronaut training and and up there, uh, but I hear you saying that um, it was, it was uncomfortable, and that there were moments that you and others of the few women who were there needed to sort of push the edges, not just for yourself, but consciously for the other women that you knew would come after you. Yeah, you had to let yourself in. I I would agree. And and that's why it was really meaningful to me to come on your podcast, um, Anna Monica, because I think there's still really a need for this. And And I worry about um, the generation coming up that thinks that all the doors are automatically open. When I would say, if you if you're going to make a bet about whether you are seen, so to speak, for your capabilities or not, um, I would I would bet for women and minorities that you are not seen for those. Still, um, still. and it's, it's still, and I, and I, and it doesn't it not are not easily seen or not seen by most by by many people as much as they'd like to see you. I mean, we've all grown up with. Um, sort of stereotypes and, and blinders on all of us, you know, including women and men. And, and and it's still a world where you need to be aware that if you think that you should be on that team, then, you know, let's make that happen. And in, and I think listening to the lessons that 
you know, Anne has, has had in her career, my lessons, Monica, the ones that you learn, you know, these things are still important things to share because the doors are not automatically open. Mm -hmm. And I always I sort of joke around that we'll have really made it when we can have mediocre women engineers <laughs> and mediocre women scientists and mediocre women spacewalkers. Yeah. But yeah. I, I don't think we're even close to that right yeah. now. Yeah. Well, because in order to be a woman, you know, you have to be exceptional or else you won't be recognized. Yeah. Well, and I would, I would um, say that, you know, for myself, um, they got so they did a lot of grading in terms of spacewalking kinds of stuff. And for myself in everything except for speed, I was not the fastest, um, but I had above average grades done in, in a way that's like a very just a plain old average. And, and that means that I was better than half the people. Mm. And so, I mean, and that I think is is saying something. In fact, I know it's saying something. Um, and at the same time, uh, the number of times, even late in the in my career, um, where somebody would say, "Do you fit in that spacesuit?" <laughs> of course I do. You know what did or, that um, What did that mean? Are... Um, well, that they would they would actually just um, you know they just would they would just really forget that I was part of that group that had proved their capabilities in that spacesuit. Mm. Wow. You know, I'm very interested, and I know our listeners are, in Katie the Little Girl. We would like to meet her. Tell us a little bit about what you remember about her, or perhaps the people or moments who influenced you as you started to dream big about what you wanted to be when you grew up. I did not dream big about being an astronaut. I, I remember that in that my brother wanted to be one and we sort of joke around that my mom woke up my brother for the to watch the moon landing and not me but we were at our grandparents house <laughs> I mean I, I say that but we all in our family know that it's only like you know a half of the truth and that we were at our grandparents house we're sleeping the of course I woke up too but uh, -huh. uh I I think and my dad was a my dad was a deep sea explorer one of the original folks, you know, back with Jacques Cousteau and Sea Lab when men first lived under the sea, and it was men that did that at first. Mm. And I grew up in this, you know, world thinking that going someplace that not many people go and living there was normal. So I think I grew up thinking that ah. exploration was normal, but it wasn't until I was in college that I realized that I could be one of those explorers. And I, I hope that that actually has changed to some extent. And yet I think that every kind of media product that's out there, whether it's a cartoon or a graphic novel or a movie that makes sure that women and minorities are included as the heroes, as the capable people, I think every one of those paves a path for our explorers of the future. But what was it in college? You said that it wasn't until you were in college. What was there that, that triggered that? The Women's Alumni Association brought in Dr. Sally Ride, the first American woman astronaut after her flight. And I remember being in that auditorium. I remember where I was sitting and I remember looking across at her and, and realizing that, I mean, there was something that I could relate to. It seemed important that she was well-educated and yet she wanted to have you know, this adventure in her life and she wanted to push these boundaries. And it was the very first time in my life that I just thought, wow, maybe I could try to do that. 
And mm. I don't, I, you know, I don't know, um, I don't know what it feels like to be a guy, um, but I, I do know what it feels like to be me. And it still is very empowering to me to meet other people that have both the same goals, but also the same struggles. And, and that's another reason why I was really excited about being on your podcast. Well, and as far as uh, the question Anne asked about being a little girl, like what types of things would you say to a little girl that met you that was, you know, sort of in awe of you? What type of things would you say to little girls to encourage them to keep pushing their way into meetings that they weren't invited into? Stuff like that. I like to tell them that whatever they are excited about, that that's something that defines them. And no matter what it is, it's theirs. And that they should realize that whatever they think about pursuing is important because they are important people who will make a difference in the future. I was lucky enough to host you in my home a couple of years ago when General Motors brought you to Detroit and um, you accepted my invitation, come, and we hosted a gathering at my home. And the coolest thing that you did was we had, uh, we invited the children and we had you out on my screened porch and I kept all the adults out of there <laughs> and uh, so that you could engage with the children. And um, I, I wanted to thank you, obviously, for that, and, um, but also to, you know, basically put it in the context of the fact that, you know, women still struggle with this culturally imposed uh, guilt about trying to balance this desire we have to um, lead exciting lives, have great careers, but also be great parents. How have you dealt with that? Because I know um, your son, I think, was only 10 years old when you were up in the space station? Making that decision was hard. And my husband and I made that decision together. And uh, it really, we just decided that this was who Jamie's mom was. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. if I wasn't being who I was, then I, I, you know, I wouldn't be being the best mom for him. But having made that decision, it doesn't mean that it's easy. And, you know, even now, you know, having a second career, after uh, you know, after my NASA career, going off speaking and trying to really promote um, promote collaboration with people that look and feel different than you do, and realizing that that is really the secret and the answer to to problem solving, it means being gone from our home, and and I still you know always struggle with that balance. And I guess the way that I try to do this is, I really try to take joy. And, and some comfort um, from the things that I feel like I am doing um, in terms of family, as opposed to always feeling like it's not enough. I mean, I actually always do feel like it's not enough. And yet I really try to tell myself, well, you know, you did that and you made sure that those things were in place <laughs> and you figured out that he needed these things and, <laughs> and that your husband needed these things. And so I, you know, I just try to do what I can and realize that it's important just to do your best on all the fronts and it's never, ever, ever going to be enough or, or easy. Is that too depressing, Anne? No, I mean, I'm laughing because I, I what a great concept <laughs> in, in terms of flipping it. It's almost like flipping gravity, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of focusing on all the things you've done right instead of beating yourself up about all the things you couldn't manage to get in. People would say, you know, well, you know, don't you feel bad leaving your leaving your kid back on earth? And I'm like, of course I do. 
um, because I really do. And you know, and, and it's not just the time that you actually climb in a rocket and go away. It's all the preparation, you know, before mm-hmm. and in the debriefing after. And you know, it's tough to leave your children and stuff like that. But at the same time, think of what you're giving them. You know, his mom is an astronaut. That's amazing. You know, so you're. <laughs> You're leaving him for some time, but think the inspiration you're giving not just to him, but to everybody is, that's got to be worth it. Well, I hope so. You know, I always <laughs> feel like the, the jury is is out. I mean, I, I felt like uh, it was a calling, you know, to be an astronaut, to, to, accomplish, to be part of accomplishing that mission. And at the same time, um, you know, you want to keep the important things close. On the positive side of things, you know, even leading that life, you know, the training, I was at NASA for a long time. And I actually got to do some very cool things. I got to spend two and a half months in Antarctica. Mm. And I lived and I lived in a tent uh, for six weeks. Um, I also spent 11 days living underwater in a, in a habitat. And this was after my son was born. And uh, the, it happened to be guys in this case at this one office where they kind of make crew support materials. And they said, you know, what can we do for you? And I said, you could film these books while I'm reading them. Like he's two and I'm going to go to Antarctica and I want his mom to be able to read him stories, which I can't do from there just electronically. It wasn't possible back then. Mm -hmm. And so I read these books aloud and they basically took films of the pages turning and they put that all together so that um, our son could, could have stories read by his mom. And that same kind of storytelling tradition really just persisted throughout my training where I would read books. Actually, I got this idea from one of my guy crewmates. When I was up on the space station, we were in the middle of reading a book called Peter and the Star Catchers. And I wasn't done with it. And I wrote to the author and asked him if he would send a PDF. And this was written by two people. It was basically uh, a comedian <laughs> and children's book author. And it's a book about the life of Peter Pan before he was Peter Pan. And it has smart girls and smart boys and fairy dust and flying and sword fighting and everything at least this mother wanted for her kid. (laughs) And so on the road, we would read that book and then I read it to him from the space station. And it wasn't so we could follow the story so much as it gave us a place to be together without really having to say, how was your day? How was your day? What's up? You run out of those things pretty soon, but it just gave us a way to be together. Mm-hmm. Well, and we are recording this episode during the last week of 2019. And so thinking about inspiration for your kid, for those who look up to you, uh, who were the people that, or, or some of the moments that were most inspiring to you? We actually just had one of those moments here in the last few days. Um, I, I don't know if you know a lot of other people would have noticed, but I think it was a pretty big deal. It was that we we launched the the first vehicle that will carry crew uh, from an American launch pad and back to America. What was important to me and really noticeable to me is that these are things that we were working on when I left NASA. And flying in space is hard. And flying in space as safely as you can is even harder. And it's something that people 
did together. People from very, very different teams from the Boeing company that was used to maybe a more military history. And then from the NASA team where we're used to human space flight, there's just integrating these worlds. And I think of the SpaceX teams as well. These are people who care so much and the mission is so important. And at the same time, in order to succeed in their mission, they have to actually embrace a different point of view. And I loved looking at these launches these past few days, looking at the launch these past few days and looking at mission control and seeing actually the back row of mission control filled with women. Mm. And that is where the bosses sit. Okay. Oh, yeah. The people who are really in charge of mission control, who are quietly watching the people who are in charge of the mission, but they they are the bosses. And and these were women that I worked with. And just seeing that the mission continues, it, it just is, tells me that accomplishing missions is a human condition and it, it never stops. And so seeing such a successful mission, they did actually have one you know, pretty serious problem, but it's something, I mean, this is why we test things and space is hard. And yet they got so much data that, that shows that they really will be able to launch people very soon. Um, I just, I was just really proud to have ever been a part of that world. Well, you know, um, there's a movie out right now called uh, The Aeronauts in oh, which yeah. uh, a woman is the balloonist. And I know there's a line in there that talks about um, them talking about bringing the stars a little bit closer. And uh, that's certainly what you've been part of. Uh, any last thought for us, Katie Coleman? Well, I like that one about bringing the stars closer. And I guess what I learned is that, you know, Earth we think of earth and then we think of space as if they're two different places but the stars already are closer than we think mm -hmm. and they're closer for everyone and going to space isn't everybody's mission but i i'd like to think that when it comes to something that's so high profile and like that that when you realize that it's a person like me or many people like me that are real people that have real struggles that then you realize that the thing that is your mission that you're the right person for that and you can accomplish that mission. I love it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Dr. Katie Coleman, trailblazing NASA astronaut, scientist, pilot, musician, mother, an important voice, a role model, and a champion for girls and women pursuing all the incredible possibilities of STEM careers. I'm Ann Doyle. And I'm Monica Doyle. Let's, Let's all, all go, go power up. Thanks for joining us at Powering Up, everyone. We hope you'll subscribe and share us with your network. And Monica and I would love to hear from you through the Powering Up Women Facebook page or at LDR on Twitter. And remember, power is the currency for getting things done. Claim yours and put it to work. <laughs>